Hey, this is Kate from the Ignorance Was Bliss podcast. You're listening to the Apple for the Teacher podcast, a show about true crime in schools. So join Anna Thomas, a teacher and your host, as she presents the bad apples within the school system. You will hear school stories that are tragic, shocking, unbelievable, and outright bizarre. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode. My name is Anna Thomas, and we are up to now episode 59. Now, today I have two stories for you which revolve around a common theme, but we'll get into that in a minute. Firstly, let's say hello to some of our Facebook group members. Hello to Tanahan Molavelioglu, Merce Kismet Kurnaz, Demet Ozdemir, Nina Catherine, Shonda Mason and Jody Gonzalez. And we are going to visit the country of Egypt today. So if you're listening from there, hello to everyone. Everyone would be familiar with King Tutankhamun. But did you know it's believed that he was killed by a hippopotamus? Yes, scans of his body show that he was embalmed without his heart or chest wall, which some believe was caused by the bite of a hippo. Ancient Egyptians hunted hippos for sport, so this is how he may have met his end. Both men and women in ancient Egypt shaved their heads to stay cool, but also to avoid head lice. They wore wigs with rich people's wigs made from human hair, while poor people's wigs were made from wool or vegetable fibre. It's a common belief that the pyramids were built by slaves, but actually they were built by paid labourers. We have Egyptians to thank for toothpaste. They made it from ox hooves, ashes, burnt eggshells and pumice. And they also buried toothpicks with mummies so that they could clean between their teeth in the afterlife. And finally, if you have children who wet their bed, well, the Egyptians had a cure for this. They would use a bag of mouse bones fastened around the child's neck. <laughs> Interesting. So parents, have a go with that tonight. All right, so let's have a preview of today's episode. The first story is called Lighter Fuse. There was a suspicious backpack in the school cafeteria. The second story is called Go to Extremes. The schoolgirl went to a school with a special curriculum. The two stories today centre around the militant group ISIS. So first, I'd like to do a quick summary about this group. The aim of ISIS is to create an Islamic state called a caliphate across Iraq, Syria and beyond. They are a jihadist group that have a particularly violent ideology. Their revenue comes from oil production and smuggling, taxes, ransoms from killings, selling stolen artefacts, extortion and controlling crops. In recent times, they have become very adept in using modern tools like social media to promote their religious views. Initially, they were active on online forums, but have now branched out on Twitter, YouTube, Tumblr and many others. So governments around the world are endeavouring to stop the ever-growing threat of ISIS online, particularly as they are targeting Western youth. Here is what one commentator had to say. 
ISIS disseminates timely, high-quality media content on multiple platforms, including on social media, designed to secure a widespread following for the group. The concern is that you have a message that is proving romantic, heroic and alluring to a swath of the Western population that's dangerous. You have the Islamic State using all forms of media and outreach to include peer-to-peer social media outreach to the youth to try to draw them to the fight. So that sets the scene for the stories today. But before we get into the first story, you will hear me refer to school resource officers. So it's necessary for me to explain what this is. And I will directly quote from Wikipedia. So here is the definition. The United States Department of Justice defines school resource officers or SROs as sworn law enforcement officers responsible for safety and crime prevention in schools. SROs are typically employed by a local police or sheriff's agency and work closely with administrators in an effort to create a safer environment for both students and staff. The responsibilities of SROs are similar to regular police officers in that they have the ability to make arrests, respond to calls for service and document incidents. SROs typically have additional duties, including mentoring and conducting presentations on youth-related issues. So now, let's get into the story. The incident at the centre of the story happened in 2018 in the state of Utah in the US. It was around midday at the Pineview High School and students were in the school cafeteria. Jack Whelan was sitting with his friends when they noticed a backpack which appeared to have smoke coming out of it. Here is what Jack said. One of my friends went and notified the police at our school and as he was notifying, one of the teachers walked by and I stopped this teacher and I said that there was a backpack that had smoke coming out of it. The school resource officer and his supervisor arrived and inspected the backpack, which by that time had stopped smoking. The bag was open and they could smell something had been burned. The SRO said, It was suspicious and shouldn't have been left in the cafeteria. I knew that we had some sort of improvised device that was designed to go off. They took the bag to the principal's office and an evacuation was enacted. But very curiously, after the bag was removed, the students remained eating in the cafeteria. Here is Jack again. By the end of lunch, when the fourth period had started, then they evacuated us, which kind of worried me because it took them the entire lunch period to evacuate all the students for something dangerous in the building. The students were assembled on the school football field shortly after the bomb squad arrived along with the fire department and the FBI. The bag was first x-rayed to determine if it posed a threat and they concluded that it didn't. They were then able to retrieve the contents and found the following. There was powder of some sort, BBs or pellets, a container, three small water bottles containing an amber liquid, tape, canning lids and an improvised fuse. It was determined that the device was not an explosive device 
or bomb, but rather a device meant to start a fire. The police spoke with the principal, who gave them the name of a student who he thought may be a person of interest. That student was then found on the football field with the other evacuated students. He was taken to the police station and a four-hour videoed interview was conducted. He admitted to looking at Islamic State propaganda and that he had gone into the cafeteria and placed the backpack against a vending machine. He said he then used a match to light the fuse in the bag and then walked away and stood in another part of the cafeteria watching what would happen. He said his intent was to cause some fear in people and that he had been researching online for several weeks. He said, I've been looking at ISIS stuff, so I wanted to see what would happen and what people would think. He described seeing the bomb squad as pretty cool. The officers asked him how he would have felt if anyone got hurt and he replied, I wouldn't really care. I don't see death as anything bad. I see it as a new way of life. I expected the thing to go off. The officers then informed him that they would have to search his house and asked if there were any more bombs or maybe a tripwire ready to go off in his house, to which the boy answered, well, that would have been a smart idea. At the time of this incident, the police had also been investigating another ISIS-inspired incident at another high school. Here is an account of what happened. This incident happened at the Hurricane High School. The school janitor arrived at the school at 7.30am in the morning and noticed that one of the buildings had been vandalised with graffiti. On one of the walls was a message that said, ISIS is coming. Now, the word coming wasn't completely spelt out. It just had the letters C-O-M-I. So it appears the person was trying to write the word coming, but was either interrupted or maybe ran out of spray paint. The janitor also noticed that the American flag on the school's flagpole had been replaced with a black flag, which to him appeared to depict the ISIS flag. He found the American flag damaged and torn. He alerted the school's resource officer, who then reviewed the school's surveillance system, which showed someone at the pole at 3.30am in the morning. When asked, the boy admitted that he was also responsible for that incident. After searching the boy's computer and phone, it was found that he made the following internet searches. Bomb, fuse, how do Westerners become recruited to ISIS, ISIS phone number, ways to contact ISIS, tactical knuckle gloves, and ISIS uniforms. There was also evidence he had viewed ISIS photos and instructional videos on how to make a bomb. He also looked for 20 other schools, indicating to the police that he may have wanted to also target other schools. The boy was charged with attempted murder and possession of a weapon of mass destruction. His case went to the District Juvenile Court, where it would be determined if he would be charged as an adult. Here is the argument put forth by the boy's defence team. It was only determined after the incident that the boy had autism spectrum disorder. 
the defence put the blame on the school district for not having tested the boy for the disorder. As a result, the boy hadn't received the resources needed to help with his autism. Here's what the lawyer said. I'm not saying the school district built an incendiary device and took it to school and tried to ignite it, but they had a duty to find out if he had autism and they failed in that duty. Had the school district tested him for autism a couple of years ago, maybe they could have directed him into special education and made sure the family got him to see medical professionals. Perhaps this incident then could have been averted. They're trying to make this kid out to be an ISIS terrorist and implicitly demonising him because he's autistic. A psychologist that evaluated the boy said the following. He concluded that the boy's autism and cognitive impairment caused him to show a lack of emotion, understanding and introspection about what he had done. He said he didn't seem to grasp the severity of the situation. There was a disconnect between what he was being charged with and his emotional activity. What was striking in my interactions with him is that, despite having been charged with some rather serious crimes, he didn't seem to have a care in the world, and I find that very concerning. The psychologist also added that the boy didn't display any delusional behaviour or related mental disorders and that in an autistic sort of way, he did have a grasp on reality, despite his emotional and intellectual impairments. The court also heard that the boy had experienced persistent bullying at school, and his defence team argued that this also played a part in what he had done. Following the court deliberations, it was determined that the boy would be charged as an adult. However, his defence decided to accept a plea deal which would see him facing a lesser charge of using an incendiary device with the intent to injure others. At the sentencing, the defence again cited the boy's autism and bullying which had made him snap. However, the judge said, This took some planning, this took some thought and that's troubling to me because you didn't just snap. He received 415 days in juvenile detention and 48 months probation. The terms of the probation were that he wear an ankle monitor for 90 days, adhere to a curfew and that he receive treatment for depression and autism. He was also required to finish high school and wasn't allowed to access the internet for six months. If the terms of the probation were broken, he could be sent to an adult prison for a five-year-to-life term. His defence had this to say about the outcome. Individuals with autism have a difficult time understanding how other people feel and have a difficult time processing their own feelings when they are bullied or made fun of or even when they interact normally with other people. They're going to react differently and it's like none of that mattered. He committed a crime, no doubt about that, but it seems like nobody's noticing that he's autistic and he needs help. All right, so here are my thoughts about this story. I was just so surprised that they didn't evacuate the cafeteria straight away. Even the students who saw it thought the same. If it had just been school staff dealing with the backpack, then I'd understand. 
but the fact that they were so-called school resource officers and just let the students stay in the cafeteria really surprises me. Just imagine if it had been a bomb and it had gone off. I would then be asking, well, what's the point of having these school resource officers? In this case, they were just very, very fortunate that nothing serious happened. So this first story showed how the ISIS agenda was being targeted towards Western youth. Let's now have a break before going on to look at how ISIS is connected to the second story. And now I'd like to share with you a podcast recommendation. Take a listen to this promo. Let's skip the foreplay. Murder. You want to talk about it. Hear about all kinds of nasty things. Sex. Torture. Madness. Dismemberment. And why, more than anything, you want to know why. Well, dear listener... You ain't never had a friend like me. Tune in to Murder Was the Case, featuring author and investigative criminologist Lee Meller. Sometimes solo, often with guests, always horrifically entertaining. Listen to Murder Was the Case on iTunes, Google Play, or go to murderwasthecase.podbean.com. It's gonna be sick. For this next story, we go to Indonesia in 2018. An eight-year-old girl named Aze got onto a motorbike with her mother and brother, and her father and other brother got onto another motorbike. Each bike carried a parcel, and they drove to a police station in the Indonesian city of Surabaya. The parcels were bombs and were detonated at the gates to the police station. By some miracle... Aze survived, but her four family members died. The Islamic State claimed responsibility for the attack. This incident followed other recent attacks on Christian churches, also perpetrated by families with young children. Within a two-day period, 12 civilians had died, along with 13 terrorist attackers, and scores more people had been injured. More attacks were prevented after completed bombs were found in a housing complex. Indonesia is the world's most populous Muslim-majority country and is proud of its diversity and religious tolerance. It practices a moderate form of Islam and also has Christian, Hindu and Buddhist minorities. However, there has been a rise in conservatism amongst its Muslim population and a growth in violent, hardline Islamic groups. The country has had many terrorist attacks since 9-11, with homegrown cells pledging allegiance to al-Qaeda or Islamic State. But a new and shocking development has been noted in Indonesia, the use of children in terrorist attacks. Aza's parents were members of a militant group called Jamaa Anjurat Dala which is considered to be the Indonesian affiliate of Islamic State. Aes grew up in this militant environment, mixing with other families who also rejected Indonesia's religious diversity. She knew the family who were responsible for the church attack and had gone to school with two of the children who had died. 
The Indonesian government recognised this growing trend of radicalising children and sought to do something to abate militant ideology being passed from generation to generation. So the Indonesian Ministry of Social Affairs set up a school which runs a de-radicalisation program for children in the capital city, Jakarta. After losing her entire family, you would wonder what Aza's future would hold, but she was one of the lucky ones who survived an attack carried out by her family and was taken in by the special de-radicalisation school. Her schoolmates included other children of suicide bombers. Now I'd like to introduce you to a man named Ghazali. When he was 17, Ghazali joined the Islamic terrorist group, which was responsible for the Bali bombings. His whole family and the community in which he lived were heavily involved in the terrorist group. Here is what he said. At the time, I wanted to go to Afghanistan to fight for Islam. It started when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan and tried to convert Muslims into communism. It aroused a lot of sympathy in Indonesia because we wanted to protect our fellow Muslims. Ghazali went to Malaysia and then Thailand, where he trained in weaponry and bomb making. After returning to Indonesia, he was involved in a number of terror attacks, but the law eventually caught up with him and he was arrested. It was his time in prison that saw his views change and he realised he had taken the wrong path in life. He said, I realised this when my wife told me our children were not going to school. They were being teased by their friends for being the children of terrorists. Ghazali then spent much time in prison reading through the Quran. I discovered that Islam basically teaches us to save, not kill. While in prison, I experienced a reversal of thinking. I felt I had misused the teachings of Islam. In prison, you don't do much other than think. I came to the realisation there was something wrong with what we considered jihad. Women and children, even Muslims, were also victims in the attacks. Destroying and killing was the wrong jihad. He was able to see the effect his incarceration had had on his children and that of other militants. He said they would drop out of school and become child labourers because the main family breadwinner was arrested or shot. Ghazali wrote down his thoughts and over time he wrote more and more with his wife typing his writings, which he eventually published in a book called They Are Not Evil with the they referring to the government and the police. But what Ghazali did next was even more remarkable. He set up his own school to de-radicalise children of jihadists using money from his speaking engagements and book royalties. The school is located on the island of Sumatra and is supported by Indonesia's National Agency for Combating Terrorism. The boarding school houses children of convicted militants or those who had died in terrorist attacks. As well as teaching the standard curriculum, the school also gives special de-radicalisation lessons. He said, in a de-radicalisation lesson, we teach how to be forgiving, peace-loving and not to hate. We teach them that Islam is a peaceful religion and that jihad is about building 
not destroying. I am a model for the children because I understand where they come from. I know what it's like to suffer because I was de-radicalized. I know it can be done. In his early life, Ghazali had become very skilled at recruiting others to become extremists, but now he is recruiting the children of extremists to join his school. He said, I persuaded parents that their children were not getting the education they needed. I told the children, do not follow in the footsteps of your dad. This attending school is also a form of jihad. Ghazali even had to de-radicalise his own family. He said, de-radicalising my own children was very difficult. My wife and my children looked at me very strangely when I got out of prison because I had changed. The children of militants were indoctrinated to hate the army and police. So the success of his school can be seen when children such as 13-year-old Andika say the following. I want to be an army commander or policeman because I want to prevent narcotics, stop crime and catch terrorists. The children who come to the school had been used to watching militant videos and even being taught how to make bombs. Their lives had been consumed by jihad, martyrdom, war and suicide. Now they were exposed to a caring and happy place where music is played and dancing is encouraged, which is totally foreign to them. At first, the children are hesitant to participate. They are also horrified by the female Christian social workers who don't wear headscarves and are not used to the kindness showed by the staff at the school. They are involved in team-building activities and even start to draw human figures which was previously banned by Islam. As wonderful as this school is, the future of the children there is not clear. At some point, they will have to leave, and what then? Ghazali said, We spend all this time working with them, but if they go back to where they came from, radicalism can enter their hearts very quickly. The solution is a very expensive, long-term mentoring program such as takes place with some of the white power youths in Europe, involving schools, social psychologists and attention to families. But sadly, Indonesia lacks the political commitment to provide such extensive programs. So for A's and other children like her, the future is unclear. What a great story and such an inspiring man. I just can't believe how his life took a complete 360. I guess it just shows that we shouldn't write people off and whatever a person's life experience, they can be redirected to a different path. And it also goes to show that for some people, prison can and does provide rehabilitation. But in this case, it seems to me that he was the driver of his own rehabilitation. It wasn't the prison forcing it upon him, as it is in most cases. Perhaps this is the key, an individual's own drive. Maybe it can be compared to, say, an alcoholic or a drug addict, that they have to find it in themselves to want to change. And I really hope that that little girl is doing okay. Her story just shows us that kids can't choose their families and that they're totally at the mercy of their parents' ideology whether that be good or bad.
We see this as teachers so often, children who come from such dysfunctional backgrounds, and you really can't blame the child for how they present at school. It's really sad that it's the luck of the draw in terms of what a child is born into. Given a different set of circumstances, these kids could potentially be someone so totally different. We've had kids who, you know, whose parents might be in jail or have substance abuse problems. They've had to be taken out of their families, put into foster care, and then they go back with them for a short time and then things fall apart again. And and these kids are just pulled from one place to another. And when they come to school and they can't cope with a classroom or school situation, I mean, what do you expect when that's what they come from? You know, all they want is just a little kindness is for you to listen to them say something nice, because that's not what they're used to. They're just totally used to negativity. And so when you give them something totally different, they really don't know how to handle it. They're wondering, well, this is not normal. I don't usually get treated this way. And it's really, really sad. And being a teacher, it really makes you realize that your own life situation, which may have been you know, pretty standard and, and, and fairly good, that this is just not the life story of the children that that you're presented with. What a wonderful school. The absolute satisfaction that the staff would receive from what they're doing. So I'm sure you agree that this story certainly qualifies as a good apple. All right, so now let's preview the next episode. It's called Quick as a Flash. The principal went to prison for murdering his teacher wife. But did he do it? And to end this episode, I will leave you with this quote. A mind is like a parachute. It doesn't work if it isn't open. Bye for now and remember to be a good apple.